This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Mitch Broderick made over $100,000 while most of his friends back home were still sitting in the classroom. Mitch decided college wasn't fast-paced enough for him. He opted out and he joined Praxis at age 21. He completed the program, got hired on by his business partner in a VP of business development role, and his first year on the job, he closed so many deals that he walked away with over $100,000, which was a personal goal of his. Now, it's not all about the money, but man, how many people do you know at age 21 who are able to do that? Mitchell did it. You can do it if you have the drive and the interest. I don't think most people realize how many opportunities are available right now, how many amazing businesses are desperate for talent. They're hungry to find people to come in and help them grow. It's truly amazing, but young people don't know this. They think they've got to follow rules and and take tests and study for two, three, four, five, six years plus after being in high school and middle school and all these things for how many years. They think they need almost 20 years of classrooms, and then a piece of paper called a resume that they blast out and just hope it does something for them. It won't do anything for you. It won't. You've got to connect with the opportunities now. You've got to prove your value creation ability. You've got to test yourself and see what's out there, and you will be surprised how many people are hungry and excited to have you come work with them. Meaningful, amazing work being done by startups all over the country. There has never been a better time to be in the world of small business, startups, innovating with with, with everything from, from tech. It's not just software though. I mean, there's innovation in every industry going on right now with amazing teams that want you to be a part of it. Don't feel stressed about not knowing how to connect to them. You probably don't. You've been in class most of your life. We can. That's what Praxis does. We have an amazing network of these businesses. We can plug you in long before you ever thought you could. Before you have any sort of credential or resume or anything like that, you don't need to worry about that. If you can create value and you can prove it and you're eager, we will help you. Discoverpraxis.com. You can join Mitch Broderick and so many others who have broken the mold, gotten off the conveyor belt, and started on a life and career that they love today. Discoverpraxis.com. Check it out. Hey, man. Uh, I've got a new rule of thumb. What's up? You ready to hear it? So, I'm ready, man. So I ended last episode on like, a, hey, there's this this correlation I've been thinking about. Uh, and then I later shared to Facebook and a bunch of over serious people got angry. So here's a new one. I think if you, the weirder you start out, the less likely to be successful you are. But if you don't, the less weird that you end up, the less likely to be successful you are. So if you start (laughs) out weird, you're going to have a really hard time being successful. 
But if you don't end up weird, you're probably not have going to been successful, right? You, the more successful you become early on, you got to be pretty normal in a lot of ways. Otherwise, you just won't have a lot of opportunities to get started. But as you start to be a high achiever in various things, the more successful you get, you just by necessity have to become like eccentric and weird and just like super odd in a lot of ways. And the more successful, the more that's true. You, you following? You liking my rule? I'm I'm following it, but I'm not liking it right now. Because you don't like uh, it. But people should be weird all the time. <laughs> but you know it's true. I, well, I, well, first of all, I can't afford to believe that. <laughs> if you're weird just... too soon, your likelihood – this is not a cro- – always – there's always exceptions. This is probabilistic, right, 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 right. just like the one about – the more days you wear a suit, the more likely it is you're making the world the right. worst place. I still right. hold by that. Oh, but there's an <laughs> exception. So what? It doesn't disprove anything. Um, <laughs> in fact, I didn't really know if I believed that one until I posted it to Facebook and several people got angry about it. And now I've decided that it's definitely true. <laughs> well, Mr. Morehouse, my father wears a suit every day and I'll have you know he is a very good man. <laughs> <laughs> what if people just want to look good and not like a bum? Um, <laughs> yep, you're making the world worse. Uh, Okay, so – but think about it though. When you first get started in anything you're pursuing, the more eccentric and odd and weird and hard to connect with you are, the more your worldview is really – like you have a hard time understanding where other people are coming from and they have a hard time understanding where you're coming from. The harder it is to find those ways in which you can create value for other people. So like when you – even just take a very simple example. When you enter a new workplace – if from day one, you're just like so weird and so out of sync with everyone else that they don't really know what to do with you, you're going to have, on average, a harder time getting things like trust and credibility and social capital that you need there to do the things that you want and get autonomy than if you have a, if you're a little more normal. You can fly a little more under the radar early on, but the more success you get, Not only the more weird can you afford to be, but I would argue the weirder you have to be because you have to focus relentlessly on what you're good at, which is usually what you do differently than everyone else. And all the other stuff, how you eat your cereal in the morning, the kind of clothes you wear are likely to be totally out of the norm because you don't care about them. You're so focused on the thing that you are good at and the better you are the more that tends to be true and you start to develop, you start to discover your own habits. And, and, and the other thing, when you're really young and then I'll let you give me your rebuttal, when you're really young, most of the time when people who are really young and getting started and things are like super weird out of the norm, it's an affectation. They don't even know enough about themselves and about all the options that are out there to like have truly discovered that they really do have these odd preferences and peculiarities. I'm not saying conform. I'm simply saying early on, your likelihood of being well outside of the norm, the typical approach to something is going to be lower. And I think that that is makes your success faster early on, but that completely reverses as you go at some point. The more you do things like everyone else, the less successful you get. And the more you do things your own way, the more successful. But later on, what, what, give, me your, give me your counterpoint. No, 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 no rebuttal. Just maybe a question or two. So We've had a lot of conversations about the philosophy of education, the value of homeschooling, unschooling, and, you know, a lot of kids who are unschooled or homeschooled 
are kids who have parents that sort of embrace the child's weirdness and and says I'm not going to put you in a uh, in, in a compulsory system where you're you're forced to conform and be normal. I'm going to let you be your weird self, your weird self that would totally not fit in in a public school because I believe there's 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 a gold mine there in that will in that weirdness. And you and I have observed lots of instances where a person starts off very young as weird, but if you kind of give them permission to be weird, they accumulate a lot of self-knowledge and they figure out how to make that weirdness work for them. Now, how do you reconcile that with what you're saying? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it contradicts because I, I don't mean th- – I actually think those are examples of people who don't – they don't necessarily even – they're almost like a blank slate in some way. They almost haven't been tainted by what they're supposed to like and what they're supposed to do. They simply don't have a strong preference like – they're just sort of trying things out. When I say weird, like habits and you're eccentric in your approach, I think maybe eccentric is better. I think of someone who they have, they do things very abnormally or out of the norm, but like they know it and they're very peculiar about that. Like, no, I will only eat this kind of thing and I will never, you know, I never take a meeting on a Tuesday and they're like very set in stone about it and they know that oddity and like they swear by it. That's that's the kind of weirdness I think I'm I'm referring to. Not just like you don't conform, you don't seem normal. Because I think people who early on when you're exploring, I mean, this is just like picking a career, a type of work you like. The earlier you say, oh, I hate sales or I love this, the, the less you're successful you're going to be. Because you don't know what it is yet. You don't even have enough information to have such a strong opinion about it or I refuse to do this. If it's informed over experience and it evolves and you're not rebelling against anything, this is where those unschoolers and homeschoolers I think are so valuable because they form these sort of preferences in a very innocent way where like they don't even know that they're like what they're doing is seen as rebellious or seen as conforming or they're just sort of like, oh, this works, this works. Let me kind of – and they don't have this like rigid – I'm the bad kid who doesn't do homework or I'm the kid who – you know what I mean? Yeah, right, right, right. I guess the self-aware kind of like stubborn eccentricities, the more of those you have early on, I think the the harder you're going to have on average um, kind of succeeding at something rapidly in the beginning. But in the end, you need to have more of those. I mean, this is just like availability of your time early mm-hmm. on being someone who's like when people are like, hey, would you want to chat about this? Or, hey, let's get a time to grab coffee. When you're really new into a city, into a career, into an area, saying yes to as many of those as possible is not necessarily a bad idea. A lot of them are going to be a waste of time, but your opportunity cost is low, and you don't yet know which ones are a waste of time. You haven't had enough reps to know, oh, okay, this has all the signs of a time waster. One could be awesome, one couldn't be, and you're likely to not even have that. You're going to come away from one thinking it was awesome, and like years later, you'll realize that's exactly the kind of meeting that's a time waster, but you didn't know it yet. So you have to kind of not have these really strict rules early on about the way that you're going to manage yourself, but then as you go years down the road, it's like... No, I never take coffee with someone that I've never met before because the probability it's a waste of time is very high. Like that's okay when you're like, in fact, you have to have weird rules like that when you're further down the road. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it kind of makes sense. And and, and I think there's a parallel here between just or or maybe not even so much of a parallel, but it's, it's kind of a social intelligence issue as well. It's like 
the more social capital you build the, or the better of a job you do at, at learning your environment and paying attention to how things work, the more you can get away with down the road as opposed to trying to do it the other way around. So maybe like an everyday example for me would be you take in, in, in my marriage. And I imagine that everybody has has some version of this in their own love life. You know, um, the the more social capital I have built with my wife over the years the more freedom that gives me to be eccentric in ways that will that I can get away with. She will understand. She will completely get it because I have trust and she knows me. Um, but, you know, if I showed up on my first date and just looked her in her eyes before she knew me and said, I really love horror movies, you know, she probably would have been like, uh, this is a weird, crazy guy. Right. But, you know, be, be, because early on in the relationship, however, you know, I exercise social intelligence and understanding her way, knowing how to build social capital, knowing how to gain respect, knowing how to earn trust. Certain things aren't as necessary anymore, and it gives me the freedom to be eccentric, even even communication wise. Right. Like um, or, or how about in our professional relationship when we first started working together? The standards of communication might have had to have been really high. We had to be super professional about everything. But now there's more leeway, right? I can be a little bit more eccentric. Um, I, I, I can afford to maybe um, uh, you know, do my work at 2 o'clock in the morning or I can afford to not communicate with you for a day without that being a problem because we built a certain level of trust and social capital. But if you walk into a job or you have a business relationship and you're doing that kind of stuff on the first day or the first week, you'll totally destroy yourself. You have to be less weird in the beginning. But then as you have that social capital, as you have that trust, as you grow, then you, you almost need to do the reverse. You need to start exploring yes. um, the opportunities you have for being unique, you know, unique. Yeah. So, so maybe I should rephrase it. So don't, don't at all mistake me as being like, Oh, conform, just duck your head, go along to get along. And then eventually you'll earn the right to be different. No, I don't, I don't mean that at all. I mean, early on, uh, try not to make hard and fast crystallized rules until you have good reason to based on your own experience and your own preferences. Try stuff. Treat things as fluid and open. Test a lot of things. And when you see things working and not working for you, then crystallize them into rules. Don't do it ahead of time because you're trying to be cool or eccentric or you think you should. Try stuff. Leave everything open. But the further you go, then you have to flip that and, and not be afraid to start crystallizing things that, into rules. If you know that something always drains you, even though it's considered socially normal and that you should be doing it, don't do it. You know, crystallize that and say, I just don't do this kind of thing. I have boundaries for myself. So everyone needs those boundaries, but the formation of them, I think, takes – a lot of experiences so you can get feedback from what really works for yourself. And the more self-knowledge you gain, the faster and easier you can put those up. All right. So that was just a little, a little teaser to get us started. So today, this is, this is the last episode of the year, TK, and the last episode for a while. Uh, we're taking the month of January off at least, and we'll decide after that, um, what we're going to do in terms of picking the podcast back up. We just need a break, need to break some things up. We both have a lot going with Praxis uh, and otherwise. So we're going to take a breather. So this will be our reflections and projections episode. 
end of the year. How do I <laughs> say goodbye? <laughs> I thought certainly you would sing like Auld Lang Syne or something because you love Christmas music, but instead you whipped out some, I don't know what that was. No, that was Boys to Men, man. Hard to say goodbye. Wait. That, I don't know if I know that. Well, come on. I got an, I know my boys to men, but I wasn't that one. Well, I, 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 I wasn't singing it right, you know. <laughs> you you got to sing that, it right. That must be it. That's what my wife always does to me. I'll be singing something. She'll be like, what's that? I don't recognize it. I'm like, what do you mean you don't recognize it? It's this song. She'll be like, oh, it didn't sound like that at all. <laughs> crushing blow. So um, I thought it was funny. Uh, Facebook warriors. <laughs> you didn't do your part <laughs> you didn't, i didn't even let you know i thought it was funny no one in particular but just several people i, I posted a week or two ago something basically <laughs> what are you still laughing about keep on man keep on go ahead <laughs> <laughs> something to the effect of you know there's all these things that we truly have don't know about the universe and we have no idea about most of the human brain we barely understand what what makes it work and like what like what like what <laughs> so there are several specific instances but I, I don't even care to get into all those it's it's all it takes is a little fingernail scratch and you and you realize pretty quickly that we don't understand the vast majority of the world we live in let alone our own history uh as a species um and then i just i just sort of said you know given this we should always be a little bit cautious when somebody is like, science declares this, it's settled, or, oh, that's stupid or whatever. We should, you know, approach things with a little humility and remember that there's like tons more left to explore. Because it's easy to fall into this feeling that like, especially if you're a specialist in something, specialists always feel like they know that we've, we we're almost there. We almost have every last piece figured out of the puzzle. And it's like, well, whatever the specific puzzle they're talking about, that's probably not even true of that. But it's certainly not true of, you know, the broader. So anyway, it was just sort of a reminder, like, there's a lot of possibility and exploration. And there's so many more things you should consider. And I thought it was just sort of an exciting, fun little post. Well, <laughs> like all the comments. And this is my favorite way of subtly trolling people, I guess. I like posting about a general principle. The general principle there was just... There's a ton that we don't know, and everyone who knows stuff can tell you we don't know it. So that should let us be excited about what's possible and not too confident about what we think is and isn't. General principle that I don't think any single person would agree with. But you do it in, in such a way where people think, they all think, I mean, I didn't purposely do this, but I just knew that people would because they do it all the time. They think that you're referencing a specific thing. They think that you're vague booking about some specific issue in the news or policy issue or position on something, and they get really scared. And so they attack it where it's like no one could disagree with that general principle. Like I would defy anyone to be like, I completely disagree. We don't need to be humble. We know everything. Um, but they attack it because they're so terrified about where you're going to take them. So like the comments were just hilarious one after the other. Like, that's pretty dangerous. You better be careful saying that when there's a, a new president who doesn't like science. Or, or like, um, well, I still – I don't think you should be opposing vaccines or global warming or just like random stuff like that about specific issues. <laughs> I, that was my Facebook. Every single person on that thread was a Facebook warrior. Oh man, I, I was trying to look for that post while you were talking, but uh, I, I guess maybe I'll have to find it later. But you know, okay, so I have, I found it. I found it. Here it is. I have to. I have to. <laughs> All right, here's what the post says. 
we don't know the purpose for the majority of our DNA. We can't figure out what most of the universe is made up of. We don't know what the majority of the brain does most of the time, let alone what consciousness is. The world is mostly mystery, mostly unknown. We shouldn't take too seriously the glib dismissals and confident proclamations by whatever strain of science is in the dominant cultural position at the moment. Even if all current scientific thought were 100% correct, assuming too a non-existent consensus, it's only correct about a tiny sliver of reality. There is much to explore. And, uh, and right, off, right out of the gate, right out of the gate, you have somebody say, we have good theories for most of these things. Care to list sources for the claim that we don't? <laughs> <laughs> I love that one, man. I, I, and, then, and then one uh, another. Let's not get down on science, especially when we have a science hostile president elect. <laughs> That's the um, classic what you and I always talk about. Like, OK, I'm smart enough to take away your meaning without harm, but other people might hear this and go and take it the wrong way. Like, who are these people that are going to read this and be like, you know what? Screw science. You know, gravity is totally bullshit. <laughs> Oh, man, here's my favorite. A, a lot we don't know, true enough, but science is the best we have so far. Let's improve on it by going on with research. <laughs> That's oh, yeah, no, no, you, somehow, you're totally right. Somehow it was read into that that I was, you know, claiming all scientific research should cease. <laughs> I know, right? So here's my theory on this. I actually don't think most people think you're vague booking. I don't think people think you're talking about them. I don't think that's it at all. I, really? I think it's – You don't think they're really. worried that like, uh-oh, uh-oh, or, or they're worried that other people are going to think that? OK, so I think it's that. I think it's the latter. I, when most people read this kind of stuff, they're not listening for themselves. They're listening for other people. When you listen for yourself, you ask a question like, what can I learn from this, right? But when you listen for other people, you're thinking of stuff like, ooh, how might those liberals abuse this, you know, to advance their political correct agenda? <laughs> or how might those Trump supporters abuse this to make the world, you know, in this particular way? And, you, you know, you always have in mind some devious person that might take what you say and abuse it, you know, for nefarious purpose, purposes or how how some irrational person might take it and say, oh, gee, now that I have the permission of one Isaac Morehouse, I am free to ignore all standards for rationality, and I can believe whatever I want, and I'm going to convince a million other people to be like that, and we're going to drive this country to hell. I mean, seriously, people aren't listening for themselves. They're listening for other people. All of these people understand, I'm telling you, and, and that's why – you can you can see it in their comments. It comes out when you actually engage them. They know exactly what you're saying. They know what you're talking about. They don't have a problem understanding you, but it's always the other guy. It, it's the elusive other guy. It's like, I, I know what you're saying, Isaac. I, I know what you're trying to say. And, and, and it, it would seem that the goal of communication is to actually try to understand what another person says and succeed. And many people can see that. I know what you're trying to say, and I get it, and I agree, but you know, you know, there's some people over here that I disagree with politically, and they might take that and they might use it for purposes that you never intended it for. And it, man, it's, I mean, like I, I think, a, it's like a fundamental like scarcity mindset or like threat based mindset. This idea that I'm constantly concerned about the way the world is portrayed to others because I want to make sure the way that we talk about things couldn't create any way for other people, not me, to potentially misunderstand it. Because like at any time, if somebody says things in the wrong way, 
it's going to have these dire consequences because there's all these people out there just waiting to take it in and misinterpret it and do horrible things. It's like so frightened and scared of like, oh my gosh, what if, you know, what if I don't say it in exactly the right way? What if, TK, what if you say something in the wrong way that I, I get it, but other people, what, what, what will they do? Like, it's so scared and like threat based and, and weak and petty. I just, I, you know, like, Hey, the world's big enough. Let, let as, as Milton said, let truth and falsehood grapple in the field, you know, and, and like truth will win out. You don't need to stress so much that other people might be dumb. They probably are, but you're not going to be able to do anything about it anyway. And, and, and I think if you, if you really care about other people, then you should do the truly loving thing, which is put some pressure on them to develop the maturity to take responsibility for their thinking process. I mean, wh where do we get this idea from that it's loving or compassionate or caring to treat people like they can't think for themselves or like they need us to filter everything for them? This is why I find it so annoying, this whole fad with fake news, you know, and, and everybody worrying about fake news. I mean, has there ever been a point in history where we were free to just accept something as true solely on the basis of the source from which it came? Was there ever a point where it was not a dangerous thing to just blindly exercise faith and authority? There is always the possibility that misinformation or disinformation may be contained in something, and we have to think critically about it. So it, it's important to challenge people to communicate more clearly and so forth, but we spend so much time worrying about how someone might misunderstand that we forget that if we if we truly love people and if we truly love truth, then we will challenge people to take responsibility for thinking critically. So w when you write something and there I don't worry about some guy who might try to use what you wrote as an excuse to, you know, be irrational because he's already made up his mind that, that that's how he wants to be. Because if you're that kind of person, then you don't need, you know, Isaac's writing to do that. If you've already made up your mind that when you read something, you're not going to carefully analyze it, you're not going to carefully scrutinize it, that you're just going to, you know, pick and choose things selectively and use it as an excuse to, you know, reject anything that science comes up with, then you have a much bigger issue than the particular word or analogy someone used on a Facebook post. Yeah, it really it really is a a complete lack of respect for individual autonomy, willpower and frankly dignity. Like if a post by me on Facebook has the power to lead people to, you know, reject reason and come to horrible conclusions, and all that like what kind of what does that say about those people? I mean, really, are there people out there who are that easily persuaded and they'll just go to? I mean, really, have some have some respect for the dignity and autonomy of other people. They're they're not basing but, but, their life off of my tweets or Facebook posts, you know. I, Isaac, but let's let's be even more precise than that because we, we don't want to just leave it as if you're saying, hey. You know, I don't have any influence. I can't persuade people to think in a certain direction. But if people can come away with that in spite of your words, if people if people can interpret your words in a way without putting any pressure on themselves to ask what words mean, to interpret things in light of context, then the problem isn't that it's possible for people to misunderstand you. The, the problem is this is a person who hasn't been taught how to properly read. This is a person who hasn't been taught how to think, and you can't compensate for that inability by worrying about every possible way in which somebody might misunderstand what you write. I mean it, it absolutely kills me that so many people –
lose a ton of sleep over this and stress out over this. Um, I don't even I don't know how to avoid you uh, can't avoid misunderstanding, misinterpretation. Even the absence of saying anything can be misunderstood. So existence implies being misunderstood. Let's get over it. Um, and, and, And if you think you're the kind of person who expresses things in a way that isn't vulnerable to misunderstanding, let's put it this way. If you think you have ever at any point in your life communicated something that isn't vulnerable to misunderstanding, I genuinely believe that you are naive and you don't get out enough. Send me whatever it is you think you have written. Send me a copy of your book. Send me a copy of your article. And within tw- for you. <laughs> yeah, within 24 hours, I can easily find plenty of people without any assistance from me. I can just hand it to them and they will read that and they will get offended. They will think you're wrong and they will interpret it in all sorts of ways you didn't mean to have that interpreted. To exist is to be misunderstood. Um, Absolutely. So I'm glad you mentioned fake news because that's in reflections on 2016. That's one of the things that, and it's very recent, but uh, a, I guess it's a new concept that's been invented. I, I don't, I, I think it's a concept kind of devoid of meaning, like meaning in the definable philosophical sense where like you could defend it or reject it because it's, uh, you can't wrap your head around it. It's, I think it's more to evoke feelings and to just kind of play rhetorical games. But like the concept of fake news just all of a sudden emerged out of nowhere. I mean, I've never, never even heard of this concept before. Like fake news used to just mean like satire, like the onion. Uh, but now apparently it means like news stories that could be untrue, I guess, which is hilarious because by definition, news cannot be known to be true or false until later. Because when it happens, that's why it's called news. If it's if it's done much after an event and all the facts have been looked at and explored, then it's history. And even history can't always be you know proven to be accurate. But to, to report on something happening as it's happening is called news. It's breaking, it's happening now. Here's what we think is happening. You can't even know if it's true by definition until you had some time and then we find out all the facts later, if ever. So like, isn't all news by definition like not provably true? Isn't all news speculation in some way? I mean, at its core, it just seems like such a bizarre concept to me. Fake news, beware of fake news. Like how many how many instances are there of like every news network literally fabricating stories, uh, making up stuff, whatever? That's always a risk, and there's already a market mechanism for dealing with that. And like you said, like what have people until recently been able to just completely trust that if something comes from someplace that says news on it, it must be true? And now all of a sudden something's changed, and that's no longer for the first time in history. We can't trust it, so we have to uh, like come up with some new cat. It's just bizarre to me. Are you? Is this seem as weird to you oh, as oh, it does to me? Oh, it's abso- it's absolutely bizarre, and. It's it's not that sources don't matter. I mean, sources certainly have the ability to gain our trust. If someone does a really good job at delivering stories that uh, have shown to be, you know, verified by other sources and verified by the facts, yes, we are more likely to trust that journalist or trust that paper. But even then. You still have to think critically because sources that have been credible for a very long time have gotten things wrong and made mistakes. And sources that are non-mainstream often see things that other mainstream sources don't see. There has never been a substitute for thinking for yourself, making up your own mind, and not outsourcing your judgment 
to the name of a newspaper or the the name of a journalist. At the end of the day, um, you are the one that has to live with the consequences of the decisions that you make in life. You are responsible for your own judgment. But, you know, it's also as if the people who use this term fake news, they they never noticed the tabloids, you know, uh, in the supermarket. I mean, those things have been out for years, <laughs> right? Um, and all of a sudden now that, you know, that there are some things going on with WikiLeaks that they're, that, that we're, we're all of a sudden preoccupied with this fake news. My thing is who gets to decide? Who gets to decide other than the market itself? Who gets to decide other than you and me um, what you believe and what is supported by the evidence? Anytime you have a president saying, Hey, you know, I need to get involved in the business of deciding what is and is not fake news. Or anytime you have politicians engaging in conversations where they're saying, we're going to stop certain kinds of stories from being shared, or we need to have conversations about how we're going to do that in order to protect you from fake news. I think you should run in the opposite direction. Yeah, I, mean, even I think a, even a company stuff. like the, the buzz has been that, you know, Facebook is going to somehow, I don't know, pro prohibit or flag fake news. I mean, it, it just I don't think that actually anything is going to result. I don't think it can. I don't think it's possible. Um, it seems more like a PR thing just to sort of just to sort of say like, oh, well, we understand that, you know, some people can read things and think they're true and then go do bad things. We don't want to be responsible for that. So we're going to try to crack down on fake news. But like, I don't I mean, imagine take take something that we all know very well. And it's not politically charged sports. Take sports news. What if you were trying to, you ran a social media network and you were like, I am not going to let anyone share any fake sports news. Now think about like 50% of sports news is like, you know, you know, sources say that uh, Doc Rivers was approached by the coach of the Atlanta Hawks about a possible position there. And then it like is a story and it's like an unrevealed source and it's basically a rumor and it has the potential to damage people's careers. And then the, the reporters will ask, you know, Doc Rivers, is this true? And he'll be like, I'm only focused on my team. And he'll give some vague answer, you know, and then it, and it will be that's like 50 percent of sports news. And most of it turns out to not happen, to not be true. There's just one like Jim Harbaugh is there are talks about him being, you know, there are talks, whatever that means, about him being the coach of the L.A. Rams and leaving the University of Michigan. And then Harbaugh's like, oh, it's it's just my enemies saying that to try to hurt my recruiting efforts here at U of M. Like somebody's somebody's lying or at least being willing to state a rumor with more confidence. But we can't know who we never can. That's sports news. That's what it is. So imagine if your job was to eliminate fake news. Would you eliminate the story that says there, you know, that Jim Harbaugh might be looking at a new coaching job, or would you eliminate the story where Harbaugh says, no, I guarantee that I'm not, or would you just leave them both and let people freaking sort it out? <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And, and we see this in the free market all the time. I mean, when, whenever you see debates about censorship or protecting people from information, it's always at some level, there's always just political shadiness going on. So think about it for a moment, like, the creation evolution debate. Think about the spaces where that debate matters the most. It's usually in, a, in, a, in an environment where someone is seeking political control over what everyone else has to think or over what everyone else has to study. Because when you walk into a Barnes and Noble, you can see in the same store 
a book about creationism and a book about evolution. You can see a book by Bertrand Russell that says why I'm not a Christian, and you can see a book by another philosopher that says why I'm not an atheist, and they and they peacefully coexist. People don't get into fights in Barnes and Noble. People don't experience they can even confusion. Put those books next to each other in the same section, and they get along. In the same. It's unbelievable how that works in the market, right? You have contradictory books sitting next to each other in the, sa on, in the same philosophy section, in the same religion section, the same history section, yeah, and it works out pretty like, well. We are going to eliminate all uh, fake history books, you know? <laughs> like, who wants to have that responsibility? Yeah, I mean, most Barnes & Nobles I've been to have a conspiracy section where it's all alternative history, and it's mostly stuff that has been mocked, that has been rejected by mainstream history, and they never have expressed, hey, we, we got to protect you guys from this. We don't, we don't want you reading crazy David Icke, right? So we're not going to let these books be sold. No, they sell that stuff is he the, right is he there the, with like, everything moon, else. The moon is, a, is like a satellite base guy? Yeah, David Icke has a lot of theories, but yeah, he says that the uh, – the moon is an uh, artificially constructed satellite by an alien race of watchers. Um, yeah, that gets you know, me so like, excited. <laughs> I'm always disappointed the, when uh, I explore these things and find out like, oh, I was hoping like I was hoping this. I'm like Mulder. I want to believe. <laughs> right. I want to believe that the moon is an alien satellite. He also has the. Uh, the the shape shifting reptilian theory that that basically <laughs> oh, the, yeah, world like the, we, the world family. we live in is like they live yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah. that's great that one would be even uh, better but yeah you could go into a Barnes and Noble man and you can find his books and anybody else's and there's no problem because in the real world people can think for themselves people can make their own choices and all you got to do is put the data out there and. Let people decide for themselves. So there's always something fishy on a political level going on when people start having conversations about making sure we protect you for your own good from being exposed to certain kinds of materials. You know, it's funny because also like news to define what news is, is, you know, really tricky. It's a, it's a bit of information that may or may not be true. So like what if you were what if Facebook was going to say we're going to ban advertisements from fake products? Well, what's a fake product? Is it a product that's advertised but never gets delivered to you because that happens for a lot of a lot of places? Is it a product that doesn't work as advertised? That could be almost, you know, a ton of the advertisers you have there. It's subjective. Is it like just the whole business is just so weird. It's just so weird. Anyway, we can move on. And, 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 well, well, I think the important question is because lots of people where they get tripped up on this is they say, "Well, are you saying that that nothing is fake? You know, are, are you saying that the distinction doesn't exist? No, 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 no. The, the key to any issue like this is who gets to decide it's the process. Yeah. Who, who gets to decide? Yeah. 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 There's time. I mean, that's that's why, because there is so much crazy whack stuff. It's too important to allow some one cluster of individuals or one algorithm determine, you know, sift through it all and determine. Um, not because it's not important, but because it's too important. Uh, okay. Let me, let me say one more thing about this because we brought up conspiracy theories. We brought up fake news. And here's one of my observations. You, you talk, you talk about people starting off weird or people who makes, who wear suits. I, I always say <laughs> never trust anybody who claims to possess the truth, but is intimidated by the existence of sources which deny their claim. You know, um, I, I, I always find it interesting that 
people who claim to be confident in their positions get their feathers so easily ruffled by by what they call conspiracy theories. That's always interesting to me because if I have the truth, all right, and you're advocating some crazy conspiracy, like if you tell me, TK, the woman who claims to be your mother is a liar. She's not really your mother. It's a conspiracy. I mean, you're not going to make me upset. I know what I know. I know what I believe. In fact, I'm so confident in what I believe, I could probably have a fun conversation with you about it. I would probably laugh and be like, for real? That's crazy. Tell me why you think <laughs> Right? But, but, but I, I find it it's so interesting that when people advocate views that are not mainstream, we actually undermine our claim to knowledge when we react as if this isn't even – I'm not even going to dignify that, that question with an answer. I'm not even going to dignify that theory by refuting it or showing you the evidence against it. I'm just going to shut the discussion down. To me, that's what makes me suspicious. And so I find when you can't just say, hey, that's not a true story and here are the facts and I'm confident in this position and I'll put the facts out there. Uh, but you have to get upset and say, oh, I, I can't believe someone would accuse this politician of doing such a thing. Uh, we got to start shutting these stories down and not allowing them to be told. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, you know, that's, to me, that sounds like you're un not confident or you're hiding something. It's the difference between – so actually James Walpole uh, tagged both of us in an article, and I scanned it. I read most of it <clears throat> just kind of briefly. I mean I read the whole thing but not like word for word uh, yesterday, I think. And it was about uh, what the, the author called um, merit beliefs – and crony beliefs, so beliefs yes. that we hold based on their own intrinsic truth, based on our own investigation of them through experience or logic, and we believe them to have proven themselves as true to us versus crony beliefs, beliefs that benefit us for them to be true. So kind of like we need them to be true to maintain certain status or achieve certain goals or be seen in a certain way. So beliefs that are used for social signaling, etc. And so I think whenever you find yourself not just amused or, you know, like, oh, that's funny or, oh, my gosh, that's crazy or, oh, you know, well, I didn't even know that view existed. Ha ha. By a by a, a view that's alternate to yours, that's probably a pretty good sign. That doesn't necessarily mean that your view is correct, but it's a good sign that you're probably holding on to it because you believe you're very confident that it's right. If alternate views make you angry, make you feel threatened, make you feel like you've got to shut down those people and correct them. You just wish they never existed. You oh my gosh, that's probably a, a sign that you need that thing to be true. You don't believe it to be true. You need it to be true to get some sense of purpose or meaning or feel like you're a good person or have other people believe things about you or not lose your credibility in your social circle. Um, that's a good sort of check for yourself. Like if the mere existence of opposing views makes you just totally threatened and angry it doesn't necessarily mean your view is wrong, but it probably means you don't actually know if it's right or wrong based on any inherent, you know, <clears throat> reliability of the, the logic within or, or the, the data to back it up. And I thought that was a really yeah. interesting way that the concept of like crony beliefs versus merit beliefs. And it's not necessarily to pass judgment on them. I mean, there's a plenty of things that you just simply don't have the time or interest to develop merit based beliefs for. And so you'll just be like, well, I don't really have a, a need to develop a belief about, you know, where the drain pipes should be located in my neighborhood, even though some of my neighbors are passionate about it. So I'm just going to say, uh, you know, whatever, 
whatever is decided in the market is more likely to be true than whatever some committee decides. Now, I could be wrong. Maybe the market decides that drains should go in somewhere that's bad for drainage or something. But like, I don't really care. I just have, I have other reasons for defaulting to that position. Um, but I'm not passionate enough about it. So it doesn't necessarily, because you have a, a crony belief, doesn't necessarily mean that's bad. But the more important that belief is to you, I think it becomes very, very dangerous. I, I agree with that. And, and I think there's a difference between shutting down an idea by refuting it, addressing its arguments versus trying to shut down exposure to the idea. Yeah. I, I'm not I'm not going to allow this information to even be put out yeah, there, like you know, because it's shame you for the mere fact that you're talking about it, you know? Yeah, 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 absolutely. All right, you wanted to move on a long time ago, but I kept this. No, going. no, no. This is is all good. We, you know what? This is a free flowing. The beehive is honey. It just drips where it wants. <laughs> um, I was trying so hard for an analogy. It just got weird. Okay, this so this is how you're going out. So 2016. So let's do a little past and present. So let's look yeah. a brief reflection on the past year, and then a little projection for the future. And the reason that I think reflecting on the past because i'm not a sentimental nostalgic type of guy but i think re reflecting on the past and doing it repeatedly is really really important because we have this amazing privilege to literally rewrite the past the past is not an existent thing it is not an objective reality any longer it only lives in your own memory so your past what you went through you have certain feelings about it. It makes you feel a certain way. It makes you inspired or sad. It you know does different things. So it affects your present, but it's totally within your ability to change it. You can you can actually go back and like rethink your narrative in different ways that alters your present experience of what your past was. And I think that's a really powerful, powerful concept to understand that, that your past is having an effect on you, but your past only lives in your mind and you have the ability to change your mind, to, to you know, um, rethink the way that things are, to reframe things. And so I have found that uh, with my own story as it unfolds, things that at the time did not seem like big elements to the story, big moments, the big decision point, they only seem like it in retrospect. When you go back and then now that I know what I know now, I realize, oh my gosh, that one conversation was a huge turning point. And now I rewrite the story in my head like it sort of alters and I haven't changed the facts. I'm not lying or fabricating, but the emphasis has changed because now I know what ended up happening when I took what I thought was just a small detour and it ended up leading to some big change. And now I can go back and, and be like, oh my gosh, you know, this was the moment, blah, blah, blah. And someone who was there might be like, yeah, but that wasn't like a big deal that moment. But it wasn't from that perspective, but from here it is. And I think it's important to do that, to go back and like retell the narrative. When I when I tell sort of the narrative of my own life, of sort of my career trajectory and my intellectual trajectory of like on this mission to help make people free, including myself and the different steps that I took to try to make that happen and how my career path and my intellectual journey mirrored each other. Blah, blah. I tell it differently now than I did a few years ago. Because now there are a few more steps and what seemed like everything led to this. Aha, the end and it all makes sense now. No longer is the end. It was like, really, that was just a step to this. So everything was really always leading to this. Now, neither of them are factually incorrect, but they're very different in the way they're framed. And that's, I think that's actually really important to like look back and be able to retell your own story and adjust it and adjust your past 
given what you now know about where things led. You feel me on that? Oh, I feel you on that 100%. This is interesting because I think one of the first blog posts I ever wrote back in 2011, it was titled uh, 86% of your week is problem free. And uh, I talked about the idea of how most problems are imaginary. And, you know, you know, I talked about, you know, how, um, you know, if you take some something like um, uh, a jerk on the road who cut you off in traffic. Right. Um, that that moment doesn't exist as a physical event like you can't find it anywhere. And if you can't find it on a map and it still exists, then that means it, it exists on your mind, you know, in your mind. You can't find that event in physical uh, space. So where does it ex it is it exists? It exists as an energy pattern in the mind or exists it exists as a memory. Um and since you can change that thought pattern, since you can change that memory, you literally can change the past as you experience it. You cannot change the past as a physical event, but that physical event doesn't exist anymore. The only thing that exists is the way that it affects you and you can alter the way that it affects you. So I, I think going back and reviewing your life, not just for the purpose of a mere exercise, let me contemplate what's happened in the past, but, but actually gazing on the past with the insights that you now have, you can actually make significant uh, modifications in how your past uh, impacts you. It's, it's, it's a great tool. Blah, let me contemplate. <laughs> Isn't that like uh, Warren G? Wait, wait, what? what? Regulators? Oh, man, I, I, I don't know the lyric, man. You know hip-hop more than me. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm disappointed and flattered all at once. Um, <laughs> so this reminds me of, by the way, we were at, <laughs> we were at the Praxis weekend, like uh, in the spring. So earlier in, in 2016, and you get up to, to say something before some kind of session, and you're like, you know, I'm going to tell you about the beginning of Praxis. I'm like, oh, this is going to be interesting. Um, and you're like, you're like, when Isaac first came to me with this idea, like, I didn't get it. And then he came to me and explained it again, and I was like, I still don't get it. And then he was like, would you go and speak and do this and help me build this? And I did it, and I still didn't quite get it. And then, I don't know, you gave some moment, and then all of a sudden, I got it. And I was like, afterwards, I was like, hey, that was a great origin story. Uh, it's a new one. I've never heard it before. I didn't know that's, I didn't know that's how Praxis started. And what's hilarious is that all the things you said were factually true, but you and I have talked at various points about you know Praxis getting started, and we framed it in different ways at different points along the journey. And I think like yeah. a year after Praxis started, after like the at like the first opening seminar, you didn't describe it that way. You wouldn't have described it that way. You would have been like, you know, here's why it's cool here, because either because you didn't yet see it that way, or because I found this with myself, it was a little too close to the moment to be like telling the people in Praxis that you didn't get it for like a couple months and it took you a long time. Then they'd be like, what? You know what I mean? But now that you have instance, or, or, or now that's say, Hey, I don't your... get this right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now that's no longer like a threat to you to be like, man, I totally didn't get it. Now it actually builds into the narrative. And like, so you're not that you're like purposefully holding it back because you don't want to look stupid, but you're now able to see that, you know, sometimes I found that I, I was not able to see a way in which I missed something or acted silly, 
you know, a month or a year afterwards. But three years after, I did see that, and that became the, the focal point of the story, whereas before it wasn't even mentioned. And both are true, but you just learn to reframe things and, and see things differently. I, I thought that was just a hilarious story because, like, you literally told the origin story of this company that we've built. And I was like, dude, I didn't know that's how we started. That's amazing. <laughs> Let's go with that. Let's go with that. Well, hey, have you ever, like, uh, read something that you wrote in the past? And at the time when you wrote it, you were thinking, oh, yeah, I'm getting down, man. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my thing. I'm saying what I want to say. And you look back at it two years later and you're like, oh, man, I had no idea what I was talking about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There have been times where I, I, I will remember the feeling I had when I wrote it and the feeling of this is it. This is a profound insight. And then I'll read it. And as a current reader, I don't see any amazing insight in it. But as, as me, I remember that I felt that there was amazing insight in it. So I have this weird dissonance where I'm like, what, what was it that I saw? Am I, am I misreading it? Did I just write it poorly and I didn't convey that feeling of insight I had at the moment? Or was that insight just totally bogus and not that big of a deal? Like which one is true, <laughs> you know? Now, now uh, I have an interesting observation about that. So you know that Kurt Elling, he's one of my favorite musicians. And he's he has several albums out now, but my favorite one still remains his first album, the Close Your Eyes album. And I still listen to that one pretty regularly, more than any of the others. And I was recently reading some uh the line notes for that album, and he talked about how this is a challenging one for him to listen to. And he has to forgive himself as he's listening to it. Because all he hears is just like this young jazz musician like, that just... I have to forgive you for ever making other albums. <laughs> right. I'm forgiving him for all the recent stuff and he's forgiven himself for the first album. So it's just funny, that, you know, the judgments, the, the way we look at our past from the present. So what did you become in 2016 that you weren't when the year started? What, what has happened? What, what's evolved? Oh, man, um, that's a broader question. I, I'll, I'll tell you some things. I, I mean just uh, off the top of my head, I, as of December, per a challenge that you gave to me, I, I haven't written a blog and it's been 16 days. And this is the first time in a really long time that I've gone so long without writing. So that's kind of a weird thing. I'm, I'm actually going through some withdrawal symptoms now, by the way, you owe me, you owe me dinner, my man, you owe me dinner because uh, you said to me, that no one's going to notice if I don't blog for a month. You said no one's going to give a bleep. And you said if they do, I'll buy you dinner. And I just had a guy right on my Facebook page a few days ago. where He was like, hey, did you take the week off of writing? And I was like, bam, I got free dinner. Okay. So I, I want to catch First of all, that. I think you're rewriting the past because I don't remember that conversation. So oh, I can't believe I can't believe you don't so remember I think, that. I think I said I'll buy you steak dinner. Second of all, since you pretend to be a vegetarian. <laughs> second of all, I said no one's going to give a bleep. That guy doesn't give a bleep. He just noticed. It doesn't mean that he cares. <laughs> I can't believe you're, you're going to try to pretend like you don't remember that. <laughs> you're just delivering fake news, TK. It's hurting my reputation. Um, hey, if I actually said that, I'm good for it. You you fly to Charleston, and I will pay to get you a hamburger <laughs> <laughs> or whatever whatever you eat. And, and by you, I mean you vegetarians, just, ma just making that clear. Um, so – you know, it's funny this year, like I always start with kind of the practical things that have changed and that kind of helps me get insight on like what led to those. Um, 
you know, the practice team is much larger. We have, you know, we've, we've added a, a, quite a few members to the team and huge shout out to Simon and Chase and Sarah. Um, <clears throat> also Grant, Diana, Hannah working with us. We've got, we've got an awesome team and it's, it's such a different experience to go from three, four, five people who are kind of like just on the same wavelength. We're just sort of in each other's brains all the time. And we're just kind of building a startup to a company with employees that weren't there from the beginning that didn't have pre-existing relationships with us that know who we are only from recently discovering it and kind of training them into what we do in our systems and building systems and having that infrastructure has totally transitioned like what my day is like, what my mind is focusing on all the time, kind of who I am is different. I've truly gone from being a startup founder to being a CEO. Now, I'm not saying that I'm uh, being a good CEO or I'm, I'm trying to learn that, but it's a totally different role that I'm in fully and, and completely. So a whole new sort of chapter to this story has evolved. And there wasn't like a single moment, but it's just sort of all of a sudden I realized, oh my gosh. And it also, by the way, reminds you, nothing reminds you more of the importance of story and of what Peter Thiel would call, you know, the founding myth of your company than bringing on employees who weren't there from the beginning. Because you need to somehow convey what we are, our origin story, what we're all about, why we came about, how we came about, the early struggles, things that we've tried, how we arrived at our current process. Because it's actually a much more uh, mucky and, and heroic in some ways story than you would lead to believe. It's not just like we decided we're going to offer this program in this following way just because. It's like, no, man, we had to earn that. That came hard. All the things that we do, you know, they came. It doesn't mean that they're right, but they came about through a process and kind of letting people know, getting them steeped in that history and that story just reinforces the importance of story. And then, of course, on the personal front, as you know, we moved to a new house and that was covered in an episode where I was really weepy and depressed about it. And it's still, I still don't love this house, but, um, and my wife and I got pregnant again, which was a total surprise. We were just just starting to look into adoption one more time. We didn't think we'd get pregnant again because we've had long bouts of uh, trouble getting pregnant. So we're like, let's just adopt one more. And then, of course, we get pregnant. So now all of a sudden going from my youngest being five and being several years past the diapers and naps and really high maintenance phase and being much more mobile with the family, going on trips together internationally all over the place. Now all of a sudden like, oh, it's been five years since a new baby's been in the house and like my oldest son is going to be 12 when this baby's born. This is so, such a different experience. Like I feel like an old man dad. And in some ways, like I have so much more yeah. wisdom to bring to the table about being a father. It's such a different and fascinating experience. And so like who I am as a person, it's about to have a baby, like ready to be a dad from square one again, a CEO now, rather than sort of like startup y foundry guy, um, there's just a lot that's changed. Like I have changed tremendously as, as a person gone through, uh, stopped blogging for a couple months and now we're going to pause the podcast for a while and trying some different stuff. Um, you know, published an, a book. It's, it, I just, I look at those physical things that happen and use those as ways to reflect back on sort of what I became in the process. I like that, man. That's some good stuff. I, I should have put a, a lot more time into this. So, so some of my, some of my reflections from the past year, you things grow, that have changed. You hair. That has to have changed you. Oh, yeah. I totally forgot about the that, man. That I've been growing my... feel what did Penn Jillette say when he lost all that weight? He had to completely relearn how to, like, have a stage presence because he relied on the gravity of his weight. And he had to, like, relearn <laughs> how to use his body to convey ideas. You have hair now. You have to relearn everything. I had to relearn, like, how to read, how to drive, everything. Your basketball dude. game was totally different with hair. 
<laughs> That's why I'm going to shave it because um, Levi kind of bullied me. Levi Morehouse of Ceteris kind of bullied me in the post and um, I had hair. Uh, and I, I don't think that would have happened had I ha had I been rocking the Michael Jordan bald. But yeah, man, you know, the, the hair thing was just kind of an experiment. I didn't I mean, I, I haven't grown. I haven't had hair in years. And people were surprised by this because they thought, oh, you I just thought you went bald because that's why people go bald. Right. But I have actually been bald for well over a decade. I mean, I went bald because of the style. I, I just thought, um Let's just be real. You know, I want it to look like MJ and it's just a low maintenance thing. And I've always gone with that. And so uh, it's it's pretty funny that when I started growing it, you know, even though I have some gray hair, people are like, you look younger because people just associate <laughs> having, having hair with you. But it was just an experiment, man. I just wanted to see if I could grow it and see what it would feel like. It, it's been cool. I still haven't decided what I'm what I'm going to do with it. But, um, you know, I, I think this has been a year of. Of major transitions in a lot of ways, you brought up some of the changes that have taken place in practice, practice bringing up uh, new members of the team and so forth. And for me, I feel that the most when it comes to the Praxis community. Um, you know, I i mean, just pretty recently, I was the, the advisor guy. Whenever we had a Praxis participant, I was primarily the person that was providing all of the coaching and helping guide them through their curriculum experience. And now I manage an advising team who does that work and we work together and I, I provide coaching to them. They provide me with the feedback and all of that. But there were two really difficult things about that for me. Number one, you know, when I started this, uh, when we started at the beginning, I, I've always defined success by eliminating the need for your position. And I've always talked a lot of smack about, you know, being a good teacher means, you know, people don't need you as much. But then I got to the point where I success <laughs> successfully eliminated the need for my position. And it was scary. You know, um, we, we, we scale things out. We, we, we built a program in such a way to where, Certain things that were once dependent upon the personality and efforts of TK were no longer dependent upon the personality and efforts of TK. And I went through that thing that everybody is scared to go through, which is what do I do when something or someone comes along and is capable of replacing the thing that I have always done? And so this year has been a year of reinventing myself, redefining my role and challenging myself to continue to be a value creator and not just think about my value to the company in terms of history. I'll always be a part of prax the Praxis history story. I'll always be a part of it from the beginning. But what about right now? Am I, am I going to live off of history or am I going to redefine myself? And I, I've had to spend a considerable amount of time, effort, and creativity uh, doing that this year. And it hasn't been an easy thing, but it's been a tremendously rewarding thing. And I, I think it's resulted in me gaining so much fulfillment from my work, me being better at what it is I do, and me being able to make um, far more valuable contributions to our community. And and, and it's, it's really awesome. It's been for the good. It's really awesome to see um, – now we have so many advisors working for us who are all able to flourish with their own personality, their own styles. We have so many more people in our Praxis community now. And I think the Praxis community is is one of the hottest things on the planet. You know, it's one of the best things on the planet. And so many people want to be a part of it because it truly is an amazing thing to be a part of. That Praxis is so hot right now. Have you ever seen, Zoo <laughs> you ever seen Zoolander? 
Yes. <laughs> um, you know, it's been amazing to, to watch, too. It's kind of like, I don't know, when Michael was just the one-man team, and then he had to learn to, to create a team around him that they all sort of embodied the Michael Jordan way of playing basketball. And you could get that, you know, no matter which bull was guarding you, you were going to get that same ferocity and, and focus because it, it came from him. This is this is what you've built, dude. I, it's been amazing to see because you are so good at coaching the, the coaching sessions with participants and acting as their advisor and helping them navigate things and, and whatever. And and I'm like, and whatever, you know, whatever it is that you do. Um, <laughs> but the ability to to find those people who we've brought on in our network of advisors and to, to train them up in the TK Coleman school of coaching, uh, has been pretty awesome to see like your particular way, learning how to not just do that intuitively, but to explicitly describe what it is and to kind of lay out, these are the things, this is the way that we approach this. This is the mindset we bring to the table and to kind of create that uniquely praxis, which is really you uniquely TK Coleman approach to coaching and advising, which is so different from the typical sort of teacher mentor guide relationship. It's so much more like a fitness trainer relationship. Um, and that's a really hard thing for people to internalize on both sides of it. But a lot of our participants early on, they just, they kind of just like, tell me what to do. I'll follow the rules and I'll get a pat on the head. And we're like, nope, doesn't work that way. And same for the advisors. It's easy to be like, well, they, they had a problem. I gave them good advice. And it's like, no, 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 that's not, that's not how we do it. Right. Like tease out right, right. what they want, have help them see the, the tools they already have, help them take ownership and say, yes, I want to commit to this. Don't give them an assignment have them come up with something that they want to achieve and give an assignment to themselves and you tease it out of them and help keep them accountable. And it's, it's very much about, even for our coaches, it's about them not needing you about them, not needing to rely on you about them learning the tools that they have within themselves. And that's a very unique approach. And it's been awesome to see you build that from an intuitive approach that you take to a system, you know, yeah, well, you know, what's interesting is one of the things I discovered, and this was a harsh reality for me, is that the problems that were resulting from my advisors was a manifestation of a problem that was coming from me. Because whenever my advisors would inform me of some kind of challenge, I would immediately respond by saying, let me dive in and fix it. And I was treating them in the very way that I don't want them to treat the Praxis participants. I was saying, let me use my experience and my expertise to fix the problem. And I had to learn to step back, resist that tendency, and to create an environment that allows them to flourish, that allows them to excel, that allows them to solve the problem for themselves in the best way that they can. And sometimes that's better than how I might even do it. And once I took care of that, which was a matter of self-management, you know, I begin to see better results from my advisors because I'm modeling what I want them to do with my participants. So, man, that that has probably been um, the, the the biggest shift for me uh, in in this past year, for sure. So, going into next year, what what do you what do you want to become? What what areas do you want to you know grow more in or become more like yourself in? How do you how do you want yeah. to evolve? So, you know, I, it's interesting because I, I've been thinking about my professional life in terms of three stages. Um, the first stage was money. The second stage was um, um, purpose. And the third stage was lifestyle. Um, 
the first stage was money. Basically, when I graduated college, I was thinking about money and I oriented my professional life around the question of how much money do I need and what can I do to be the kind of person who makes that sort of money. And so I made a lot of decisions that way. But then I, I, I graduated to like a second level where it was more about purpose and, and less about figuring out what I need to learn or do to make money. And it was more, what kind of effect do I want to have on the world? What kind of results do I want to have? What kind of story do I want to tell when I die? And that has been the stage that I've spent most of my life in, I would say at least, you know, the, the past five to 10 years. But I now feel myself transitioning into a phase where it's no longer primarily about the money and it's not even primarily about the purpose. It's about what I want my day to day life to look like. I, I heard Jeff Goins blog about this where he talked about learning to love the process and not just the goal. And he says, when most people think about work, they just think about how much they love the goal. So there's the actor who thinks about the goal. I want to win an Academy Award. But what about the process? You have to audition for roles. And if you have goals that you love, but you hate the process, you know, some people can deal with that, but that can be a miserable life. What you want to find are processes that you love, that you feel enthusiastic about, and you want to integrate those things with your goals. And I feel like this year, and Cameron Soresby and I have worked a lot on this together, and I also read a copy of Managing Oneself, which had a profound impact on my life. I think I'm finally getting to a place where I am locked in and I am fully aware of how I need to live my life, how my workflow needs to be in order for me to be happy, fulfilled, and in order for me to, to have optimal performance. And so as I look forward to the new year, I'm not thinking about money and how much I want to make. That's not going to be the basis for my decisions. I'm not even thinking about, oh, what's the, you know, the big narrative I want to have when I die or what's my cosmically, cosmically significant purpose. I'm thinking about, all right, how do I want to spend on my, my Mondays and my Tuesdays? What time do I want to get up? What time do I want to go to bed? Like, what do I want to eat? Like, what do I want to read? What do I enjoy? And orienting my days around that and letting the money and purpose a part of things take care of themselves because it's taken me a really long time. You know, you and I have talked about this before, how when you're running a business versus working for someone else, you have to create your own structure as opposed to having provided, having it provided for you. And I think I've finally gotten to a point now where I get it. I know how to work. I know what kind of structure I need, and I know where what areas of my life where structure is not good, and I'm looking forward to 2017 so I can just live my life the way I finally figured out how to live and, and, and watching to see what comes from that. That's so hard to do for, I think, especially for people who have been schooled most of their life, and it's, it's so rare to have a particular goal or challenge that you want to accomplish and literally no one there to make you do it, to give you reward or punishment, to tell you, okay, you know, even sports that are not necessarily part of the academic thing. It's like, Oh, I want to be good at basketball. There's like a team, you go join it. There's an authority figure to kind of tell you to practice this, to practice that. The number of things where you're like, I have a goal. No one else cares about it, knows about it. There's no structure for me. I have to, if I want to achieve this, I'm going to have to build my own structure to get me to get the things done I need to to get there. Most of us have so little experience doing that through the schooling system and even through many jobs and whatever that it's that's like one of the biggest challenges ever to learn how to create your own structure because structure is not the enemy. It's just other imposed structure. 
uh, and, and structure built to achieve goals that are not your own. That's, that's where the problem comes. And so rule following is really the enemy of meaningful structure because you don't know how to, how to structure things. You don't know how to create structure. You just know how to follow rules and hope that somebody else put those rules within a structured context. Right. And Mm. so that's a really Mm. big challenge to be like, you think all of us think I want to be free from structure because I'm so tired of being told to, wouldn't that be great? And then you realize structure is not the problem. It's just the will and, and goals of others that are not your own. That's the problem. And if you go to pursue your own goals, you're like, oh, crap, I really need structure. Structure is important. And the temptation is to quickly look for somebody else to give it to you because that's what you're used to. But that's not going to get you there in the long term. That's really powerful. So, oh, the other thing is every time you said the word goals, something about the way you said it, I just kept thinking, I got goals in different area codes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know that one, right? Yeah, I know okay, that good, one, man. <laughs> so, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, for me, I guess I, I never think in terms of big like New Year's resolutions and big, you know, what's my main goal? What do I want to have by the end of the year? I, 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 again, like you, I like to focus on process instead of goals. And if I stick to a process that I believe will help me overcome obstacles or make me a better version of myself, at the end I will have achieved um, – things that I wouldn't have even been bold enough to, to set as goals, uh, before. Um, so for me, I, my focus right now is kind of, you know, there's several steps in the kind of the entrepreneurial journey or or building a, a business, building anything. And one of them is, okay, you, you get it off the ground. It takes a lot of work and there's a lot of steps to get there. And then it's when bad things start to happen, learning to not let those destroy you and, I think that was in the first two years probably of Praxis. That was really the lesson I had to keep internalizing. Um, You know, my brother who had been through a lot of business stuff several years ahead of me, it really helped me with that. But just realizing like, it's not going to kill me. I'm not going to let it stop me. I'm not going to freak out. I'm not going to stress about everything that goes wrong because things are going to go wrong. If I'm playing at the level that I want to play at, um, there's going to be a ton of stuff that goes wrong. So I got to get comfortable with that. Now, I'm beyond that. I can handle that kind of stuff. When things don't go right, it doesn't flush for me that much. But the next level challenge that I've identified for myself is not getting too excited about things going right, not getting too much psychic value and getting too much of an emotional boost when something good happens, when you know we get a new customer, a great new business partner, some great new result. Not because it's bad to get excited about those, but because you get to a point where that limits you. When that's the thing that gets you pumped and gets you high, you want to go to produce more of that, and it limits. Like you, I want to be at a whole different level. I want to be at a level where I'm not satisfied with that. Not that it's not good, but that that's no longer a giant thrill for me. It's like when you're a little kid and you make one basket on a 10 foot hoop, you're super pumped. Right. But if I want to be great, I don't want to be the kind of person that throws a giant celebration every time I make a basket. It's always good, but I I want to be at a level so much bigger than that, where I don't even throw a celebration. If I score 30 points, you know, I don't celebrate Mm -hmm. until I've won the championship and the MVP, you know what I mean? Like, and so getting to a point where I don't take too much, sense of I've done it. We've done something great. I get personal fulfillment and meaning out of every good thing that happens. I think that's a trap that's starting to slow me down. And I want to be able to, to not get my kicks 
out of small good things that happen. They, they seem big now, but I want my sights so much bigger that I don't let that impact me to a way where I'm like, woohoo, successful day. You know, I, I want that on oh, to the next yeah. one in my mentality. You know, that, a lot of people can can hear something like that and be like, but but isn't it valuable to enjoy the moment and celebrate the accomplishments along the way? And because I, I know this context very well, I know it's not a matter of feeling the need to suppress your appreciation. But a lot of this um, is very resonant with a, a book that you and I both recently read, uh, Relentless. It's more confident setting your sights high. It's like, uh, you know, what do they say in football? You know, when you get to the end zone and make a touchdown, act like you've been there before. You know, you throw some elaborate celebration. It looks like you're the kind of person who doesn't make it to the end zone very much. You know, Barry Sanders just handed the ball off casually because it was like another touchdown. What's next? You know what I mean? And you can see it in sports. I remember um, one time that there was a commentator talking about the Lakers and, and why he, you know, when Kobe and Shaq played and why he thought they were dominate. And another commentator said, why? Do you treat the Lakers as if they're the team to beat? Phil Jackson just got there. They haven't won a championship yet. And he says, well, as soon as the rest of the league stops celebrating like crazy every time they beat the Lakers, then that's when I'll stop treating them Ooh. like they're to beat. And you, you could see the difference. The Lake, Phil Jackson had just got there. They hadn't won a championship yet. But when other teams beat the Lakers, they celebrated like they just made the playoffs. And when the Lakers beat other teams, they treated it like that's what we were supposed to do. And when they clinched the playoff berth, they didn't do like other teams. Other teams celebrated like, yay, we made the playoffs. The Lakers treated it like, of course we made the playoffs. We're the championship contenders. Of course we made the playoffs. Let's focus. You know, and, and you can tell the difference between a champion the, and a contender. Uh, the Tigers, I can't remember what year it was. It was they went to the World Series either back-to-back -back or, or two out of three years, something like that. It might have been like 2007, something like the 2000, I don't know, um, around that time. And they had this amazing playoff run. And when they clinched the division, they, uh, they won the division series. They had the most outrageous, just champagne everywhere, just like elated. They were so excited. All of Tiger Stadium was going nuts. It was just this massive celebration. And it was so exciting to see because it had been a long drought for the Tigers and they were massive underdogs in this playoff series. But I immediately was like, crap. If that's their emotional state, they're not ready to win the World Series. If that's their emotional state after winning the, the ALDS, they're not, they're not there yet. And they actually did end up going to the World Series. So they won the next series, the ALCS, but they completely crumbled. They were actually, by the time they got to the World Series, they were actually the better team in that one. I don't think they were the underdog on paper, but they just crumbled. They were so overwhelming for them. And I, I just felt like I saw that when they had that massive celebration. I was like, okay, this is too big of a celebration for somebody who's mentally thinking on the next level, you know? Oh, absolutely, man. I, 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 I like that adjustment, brother. I love it. So um, from now on, when you're like, hey, man, check it out. Great news, blah, blah, blah. Just expect me to be like, it's I. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Just final, so what, man? <laughs> final recommendation of the year. The final countdown. <laughs> <laughs> oh man all right so so what are we going with are we going with uh we, we should make this fun we should switch it up a little bit we should go with uh maybe we should do movies Ooh, we can do that um okay well i'm gonna sneak in a book too 
uh, go pick up Square One, The Foundations of Knowledge by my buddy Steve Patterson, who's been on the show a couple times. Uh, phenomenal. Great. You just, you just wrote a review about Great that, right? To start. Yeah, I just reviewed it on Amazon. If you, if you look it up on Amazon, you'll find it. Square One, The Foundations of Knowledge. Um, movies. So I could be just forgetting what other movies I've seen this year if we're going to go for the whole year. But I did just see this movie, and it absolutely – like currently – I've, I've given up on trying to have favorite movies. Instead, I have, like, favorite movies at at this moment. Uh, so currently, this would probably be, like, my second favorite movie, second only to Interstellar, and that is Arrival. Phenomenal, phenomenal movie. Go see Arrival. And it actually, it actually, a big part of it, without giving anything away, hinges on something that we discussed at length in a podcast episode um, where we talked about the books Sex, Drugs, Einstein, and Elves, and we talked about, um, you know, the language and perception and things like that. So really interesting. They talk about a specific uh, hypothesis in there that we mentioned that was mentioned in that book, and we and we discussed it at length. Um, go see Arrival. Man, that was a, just a phenomenal movie. Oh, man. Well, all right. I'll, I'll keep it on the, the sci-fi mind-bending tip as well, and I will go with the movie that uh, I know you've seen called Predestination, uh, starring Ethan Hawke. And um, it, it's a great movie that explores um, interesting ideas surrounding the nature of causality and time travel. And it's a, a really well-told story with some good performances. Did we watch that? Like, you were at my house, and we were like, let's – it was, like, really late. Heather had gone to bed. We're like, let's, let's watch something cool. And neither of us had ever heard of it before, but we're like, it's got Ethan Hawke. It's got to be pretty well done. Let's check it out. Wasn't that, were you, wasn't that you that watched it with me? Yeah, except my line of reasoning was, it's got Ethan Hawke. He was in a movie with Denzel Washington, so <laughs> – You were like, maybe this is like Training Day Part 2. Let's check it out. Oh, man. Hey, favorite Ethan Hawke moment? We, we should – this is a great place to end on. Come on. Oh, oh, f- favorite Ethan Hawke moment? You got to know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I don't know yeah, what you're talking about. It's in the movie about. Gattaca. And he's oh he, yes he's yes like genetically inferior to his brother who's supposed to be just this physical specimen, and they go swim out in the ocean and they have this contest they play chicken they swim out as far as they can until one of them has to stop and turn back, and the one who you know stops is the loser, and the genetically inferior Ethan Hawke, he always wins, and the guy's like how is it possible that you always beat me? you know, in this, in this competition when I'm physically superior to you. And what does Ethan Hawke say, TK? He says, I never saved anything for the trip back. Oh, such a great line. So with that, we will say, we will bid adieu to 2016, take a hiatus from the podcast for an indeterminate, undetermined, indeterminate, I think it's undetermined amount of time. And uh, what? I'm worried. I'm worried that when when I said don't save anything for the the trip back, I'm worried that some people are going to misunderstand that as party really hard on New Year's Eve and don't save anything for the the next year. Maybe I should rephrase my words. You know, while I agree with you and while I understand the meaning of that quote, don't you think it could lead people into recklessness? Like what if what if somebody does that and they actually drown? Come on, TK. (laughs) 
<laughs> save your life. Party hard. Save you your life. Any, I want to I see you in 2017. Do you have any peer-reviewed <laughs> sources that will verify that this is a good strategy? In a, in a game theoretical context? <laughs> Dude, you're going to get so much hate mail right now. <laughs> All right. Peace out, people. Don't save anything for the trip back. Peace. If you're a fan of the show, do me a huge favor. Go to iTunes, give it a rating or review. A rating is only a simple click of a button, or if you're on your phone, a tap of a finger. And it will help people find the show a lot easier. And if you have a little extra time, write a review. What you think about the show? Honest opinion. That stuff goes a long way in giving more exposure to the podcast. What do you get out of all of it? You get the pleasure of knowing that as more people start listening, you get to say, I was there first. 